what's wrong with the world? Hardly anybody would say nothing. Most people agree the world is racked with problems. Uh, they may disagree about the nature of those problems or the seriousness of some problems over others or the solutions to those problems, uh, but nearly everybody agrees the world suffers great problems. The scriptures agree with that assessment. The world has massive problems. But the scriptures always evaluate these problems in relation to God, our maker. And they identify the root of these problems in our sin and our rebellion against the Lord. See, God created the world good, well-ordered, full of life. God created man to image his glory by ruling creation. The beasts of the earth lived beneath man's dominion. Psalm 8 says that God crowned man with glory and honor. But man quickly rebelled. And instead of ruling the beasts by God's word, he lets a crafty serpent rule instead. And when he did, it upended the created order. And man lost his glory. And man sunk humanity into sin and shame. God cursed humanity with death. Even worse, man was separated from God and God's wrath was set against him. Without God, humanity becomes so curved in on itself that we lack the ability to change our desperate predicament. From glory... Plunged into shame. From rulers to slaves of Satan. From fellowship with God to punishment beneath his anger. All because of sin. That's the root problem according to Scripture. But Scripture also announces the grace of God. Despite what we deserve, God gives His Son a people. And this Son lays hold of these people and He leads them back to glory. That's what verses 10 to 18 explain. How God acted to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And in the process, verses verses 10 to 18... Also answer this age-old question, why did God become man? Let's read together, starting in verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So how does God bring many sons to glory? That's the question the rest of chapter 2 answers. He's, uh, he's still developing this great salvation that he mentioned back in verse 3. Uh, the one that we're not supposed to neglect. The one that we're supposed to pay very careful attention to. We're not to lose sight of this salvation's greatness. And part of the picture of that great salvation came in verses 5 to 9, where God created man to rule creation, but at present, we don't see that yet. We see a warped dominion. Because of Adam's sin, we see man functioning as he was cursed, not as he was created. But that's not where God's grace leaves us. In his son, God restores to man what Adam lost. And we, so it, it said in, in verse 9 that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. I want you to notice the word in verse 9, glory. So it comes from verse 7, where he quoted Psalm 8, of man being crowned with glory and honor. The glory in view is the glory that's bound up with mankind ruling the world under Jesus' lordship and in Jesus' presence. Question is, though, how can rebels make it into that glory? How can they ever enter that glory? We know it's got something to do with Jesus being made for a little while lower than the angels. It's got something to do with Jesus tasting death for everyone. This is verse 9. But the details are still kind of fuzzy on how that works out. And so that's what verses 10 to 18 are for. They explain how God's Son identifies with us and suffers unto death to bring the many sons and daughters to glory. So let's answer the question, how does God... Through his son, bring many sons and daughters to glory. Number one, as our founder, the son identifies with the many sons and daughters, and then he suffers obediently to qualify as their representative. The son identifies with the many sons and daughters and suffers obediently. To qualify as their representative. At the beginning of verse 10, uh, the He is God the Father, because of whom and by whom are all things. Okay, so whether creation or redemption, the Father is the ultimate cause and sustainer of all things. He designs all things and then He so involves Himself in them that they necessarily accomplish his purpose. Now, part of his purpose in grace is to bring the many sons to glory. 
And so verse 10 then adds, it was fitting that God, this God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their, faith, of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he says it's fitting. In other words, the son's sufferings are not the result of a mission gone bad. Okay, his sufferings fit. They're appropriate to God's plan to get the many sons to glory. But what does it mean that he makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering? Or better, through sufferings. It's plural. Does that mean Jesus was lacking something morally? That he wasn't morally perfect and then he had, he had to become that? Work his way up to that? Not at all. Jesus was born without Adam's sin nature. Luke 1.35, the child shall be called holy. Hebrews 4.15 also says that Jesus was without sin. The perfection in view has more to do with Jesus' vocation. With him qualifying as our human representative. Remember, when God put Adam in the garden, he tested Adam's obedience. Adam's obedience to the Father was tested, and Adam failed. In order for Jesus to qualify as the new and greater Adam, his obedience likewise had to be tested. That is, as a man, the Son had to be tested. His faith in the Father under trials had to remain true. Whatever sufferings he endured throughout the whole of his life, those sufferings were the occasion for his obedience to be tested and proven. And to succeed would then qualify him to become our representative Savior. Okay, to show you where I'm coming from, just look over at chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is chapter 5, verse 7. He offered up these, loud, these supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. When you hear learned obedience, look back to the prayers and supplications, the loud cries and tears beneath suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see that? The being made perfect corresponds with him learning obedience through what he suffered. Again, not to make up for, what, for where he was disobedient before that, but to fully experience what conforming to the Father's will is like under the pressure of suffering as a man. We get a sense of that in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Right? And he's, he, he is experiencing tremendous suffering 
and pressure as the cross approaches. And he's sweating drops of blood. And he prays, Father, if possible, let this cup pass. But not my will, but yours be done. He's learning obedience there. That's one reason. This is one reason why Jesus had to become a man like us in every respect. By succeeding through those sufferings, he then qualifies to be our representative. Or we could say it this way. He succeeds in sufferings because he's got a family to represent. He's got brothers and sisters that belong to him. And he wants them to share in the inheritance with him. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, his people, all have one source. Okay, other translations have one father, meaning God the Father, uh, or one family. Either one fits very well with, uh, ver- with the rest of verse 11. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Father, family, we're dealing with a familial context here. So he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And in this context, it's safe to add brothers and sisters. He's got a family to save. He's got brothers and sisters. And he must identify with the family members to become their representative. To lead that fallen family back to glory. Okay, and then he supports that idea with two places from the Old Testament. And the first is Psalm 22. Uh, Maybe you've heard these words before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry that Jesus made from the cross. It comes from Psalm 22. Uh, or maybe uh, you're, you're, you can recall when the soldiers, the, they divide up Jesus' garments and then they cast lots to, uh, to, to see who gets the, the most precious of those garments, right? And, and John 19 says, well, that all happened to fulfill Psalm 22, verse 18. So quite often what you find in the New Testament is the apostles applying Psalm 22 to the sufferings of Jesus. In other words, David, in Psalm 22, becomes a type or a shadow pointing to Jesus. God had David suffer real things, and God had David write about those sufferings in such a way that they anticipated the greater David, the greater king of Israel. Psalm 22 is about the king of Israel suffering as his people's representative, all the while remaining faithful to the Lord. But something more in Psalm 22 is this. God eventually vindicates the king for his faithfulness, and that vindication leads to the spread of joy and worship among God's people. And that's where this quotation comes in. 
is that the king has both suffered and, and finished his sufferings faithfully, and now he's vindicated by the Lord, and the king is coming into the assembly to lead them in worship and praise to the one who, 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 who vindicated him. And so he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So we have an Israelite who represents God's people, the king, and his obedience is tested by sufferings, and he remains faithful. And then we see his solidarity with the people when God vindicates him. He says, he calls them my brothers. And so all of that in Psalm 22 is pointing forward to Jesus. And we, saw, we find something very similar in Isaiah 8, which is where the, the other two quotes come from. Uh, only this time, the Israelite who represents God's people isn't the king, it's actually the prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah is, is like the represent. he represents the remnant in Israel, like the faithful in Israel. And God also tests Isaiah's obedience through sufferings. Okay, Isaiah 8.17 depicts God hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And, and also talks about the Assyrian invasion that kind of looms over the horizon, this judgment from God that's about to fall on the people. But neither Isaiah nor the remnant should lose hope in the Lord. Rather, as Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him, which is the first quote we see in verse 13. Again, Isaiah represents God's people. Isaiah's obedience gets tested through sufferings. And then we see the same third thing that we saw in Psalm 22. Isaiah's solidarity with the people of God. He says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. So here's what Hebrews is getting at with these three aspects. It's developing from from, uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. The Spirit that kept the remnant faithful through sufferings was the Spirit of Christ all along. The Spirit of Christ said through the remnant, I will put my trust in Him. And now Jesus is the true embodiment of that remnant. He is the Israelite who represents God's people perfectly. He is the true Israel who bears up under sufferings perfectly. So that's the first part of how God brings the many sons to glory. God gives the son a family, spiritual children, brothers and sisters. And then the son willingly commits himself to identify with them, to walk through sufferings as they walk through sufferings. And then thereby, when he succeeds qualify himself to represent them as their savior. Okay, but there's more. Not not only does he represent them, he actually delivers them. He completes the work. So number two, as our victor, the son destroys the devil's power and delivers the sons and daughters from the enslaving fear of death. The son destroys the devil's power And delivers the sons and daughters from the enslaving fear of death. Verse 14. 
He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Notice how he's drawing from the, he just said in verse 13, behold, I and the children. Now he's drawing off the children. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, or better, lays hold of. But he lays hold of the offspring of Abraham. Just recall for a minute with me the book of Exodus. And how the book of Exodus begins. Exodus begins its story... By listing out the names of the sons of Israel. And the point is that you're supposed, it's supposed to alert you to who's in Egypt. It's the children of Abraham. It's the offspring of Abraham. They're the ones in Egypt. And they're in slavery. They're in captivity. The offspring of Abraham is held captive by this oppressive Pharaoh. And as the story goes, though, you know, God lays hold of Abraham's offspring and he gets them out of Egypt. Well, likewise, those God chooses to save are in a captivity. But it's a captivity far worse than some human ruler over a temporary regime in Egypt. This captivity involves sin, death, and the devil. I mentioned last week that death isn't just the natural end to life among some fixed chain of events. It is God's judgment against sin. To compound that problem, though, is this. The devil uses death as a weapon. Okay? You've heard of terrorists before. Terrorists use the fear of death to force people into acting a certain way. So do politicians to get you to vote for them. They just call it other names. People use fear and they use terror to enslave people to their agenda. Satan is the chief terrorist. He doesn't possess the power of death in an ultimate sense, but he uses people's fear of death to keep them under his thumb, to wreak havoc and pain and to keep people's mouths shut about Jesus. That's why he wages war against his saints. This dragon in Revelation 12. He's going to put them to death. Well, Jesus is saying here that Jesus becomes like us in order to lay hold of us who are in that captivity and to lead us out in the same way God led the children of Abraham out of captivity. 
But his deliverance is far greater. And he does it by passing through death on our behalf. His death did two things. It nullified the devil's power over the many sons and daughters. And it delivered them from the lifelong slavery to the fear of death. How? Well, because of his death takes care of our sin problem. The consequences of our sins is death, and even worse, judgment after death. And so the consequences of our sin make death really scary. Judgment awaits the wicked. But if Jesus' death takes away our sins, if his death averts the punishment our sins deserve, if his death so reconciles us to God that... As Romans 8 says, not even death can separate us from the love of God. If that's true, then what else is there to be afraid of? As 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is sin. But through his death, Jesus yanked the stinger out of the scorpion. Death has nothing on the Christian anymore. When it's time for the sons and daughters to enter glory, remember that's where he's taken us, into glory. When it's time for us to enter glory, death won't be able to keep their bodies in the grave. Everything that would have kept them enslaved to death was removed through Jesus' death. And in that way, his cross achieves the death of death on our behalf. And therefore, the devil lies stripped of his power over the sons and daughters. We have an elder brother who has passed through it already. And he stands victorious on the other side. And if it has no power over Jesus, it has no power over the people he represents. Over the sons and daughters. We don't have to fear death anymore, beloved. And then lastly, we, we, we see number three, as our high priest, the son makes propitiation for sins and helps the sons and daughters when they face temptations on the way to glory. The son makes propitiation for sins and helps the sons and daughters when they face temptations on the way to glory. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I want to glance over at chapter 5, verse 1 for a minute. It says, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's helpful uh, explanation of kind of what's going on here in chapter 2. To become our high priest, 
God's Son had to be chosen from among men and appointed to, be, to act on behalf of men. Right? An angel could not represent the sons of Israel before God. The high priest had to be a man. One with the people that he represents. So God the Son had to become a man in order to be chosen from among men to represent the people. He couldn't represent us before God if he he was a mere spirit or an angel or even just the divine Son. He wouldn't be one with us in our humanity, but he he becomes one with us so that he can represent us as high priest. And what does the high priest do? Well, he offers sacrifices for sins on behalf of the people. God was telling a story in the Old Testament with, with the priestly sacrifices. And that story goes something like this. God is holy and he cannot overlook sin. He is angry with our rebellion. And yet, God also chooses to love sinners, to bring sinners into his presence. But his love for those sinners has to be in line with his holiness. It has to be consistent with his holiness that's consistent with his love for what's good and his hatred of what's evil. So that means he must satisfy his holy anger somehow. He can't just sweep sin under the rug and pretend like it never existed. He must deal out the judgment. And how does he do this? Well, he provides a sacrifice to remove God's wrath against sinners. That's what propitiation entails. Propitiation describes God's act to remove his wrath against sinners in the death of Christ. I'll say that again. Propitiation describes God's act to remove his wrath against sinners in the death of Christ. And the way he removes it is by satisfying it. God pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place. The sacrifices of the high priest were only symbols... They pointed to Christ's better sacrifice... ...the true sacrifice that actually... Satisfied God's wrath. The priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well. But Jesus is the faithful high priest, right? He had no sins that require a sacrifice. We have plenty that need sacrifice. But being also a merciful high priest, Jesus sacrifices his own life in place of ours. So what we're seeing here is that God's love provided what His holiness demanded. God gave His Son and the Son willingly stood in our place to remove God's wrath. He satisfied it forever such that God is not against those in Christ any longer. He's 100% for those who belong to Christ. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, God is no longer angry with you. His wrath has been completely satisfied in Jesus and God is now 100% for you. So 
So the sons and daughters now have fellowship with God. But get this as well, Jesus didn't just die as a propitiation for our sins. He rose from the dead to become our ongoing help. Sometimes as Christians, we, you know, we're struggling with this, like, man, it's amazing, our sins are forgiven, but man, life is hard. It's still hard, like, sins are gone, but life is hard. And sometimes agonizingly painful. So what about that? Well, God has that covered. He has that covered too. Because he himself suffered suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. There's no one more qualified to help you through your sufferings than Jesus. No one more able than Jesus. No matter what you've experienced... He suffered worse, way worse, under the wrath of God. And he endured those sufferings without sin. The pressures to quit the mission became greater and greater and greater and greater the closer he got to the cross, and he never gave in. He was faithful to the very end and He chose it all to reconcile you and me to the Lord and then to help you get to glory. So when you fall, His sacrifice has you covered. And when you're tempted, He's the ever-present help in time of need. All for whom He died to secure for glory, He helps them make it to glory. His work is of one piece. What did we say our problem was at the outset? From glory to shame, from rulers to slaves, from fellowship with God to punishment beneath His anger. But what have we seen God achieve for us in Christ according to Hebrews 2? Jesus identifies with our humanity to bring the many sons and daughters of glory. Jesus enters uh, death to free us from Satan's power and deliver us from the fear of death so that we might rule. Satan doesn't rule us anymore. And Jesus offers a sacrifice to remove God's wrath and become our help on the way to glory. This is how he saves us. This is how he undoes what sin did. He's a great Savior, beloved. Now, with that said, I want to leave you with just a few implications to consider from this passage. Uh, Some of them you're going to go like, well, why didn't he say anything about that? Like, we could go on about the fear of death forever and and what it means to be delivered from that. Well, we'll get to that later in Hebrews. So I've chosen some others here. And the first one is this. Treasure the Son's incarnation that he became one with us in our humanity. Treasure the Son's incarnation. That He became one with us in our humanity. We love big God theology. I mean, chapter 1 was remarkable, wasn't it? The Son is creator and sustainer. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Son, superior to angels. 
The Son deserves our worship. The Son who is eternal, truly His majesty is above the heavens. And rightly we defend the majesty of Jesus. Rightly we defend the deity of Jesus against all these other false religions that say Jesus was just a mere man. Rightly we declare that He is sovereign Lord of all. At the same time, it's not uncommon in our defense of one truth to forget the significance of another equally important truth. The same Lord of all condescended. He drew near. He humbled Himself. He became one of us. As Lord, He has every right to demand our obedience. And yet He stoops to learn obedience as a man. To taste what it's like to throw Himself into the Father's care under the immense strain of many sufferings. And it's crucial that we not neglect Jesus' true humanity. Jesus is one person with two natures. Truly God. And truly man. A human mind. A human soul. A human will. A human body. With human emotions. And to lose sight of this is to err and compromise the gospel. To compromise our understanding of Jesus' person and work. Even throughout church history, some have suggested that Christ only appeared human. Or that Christ suffered only what seemed like a death, but really wasn't. Or that Christ's humanity was kind of absorbed into the divine. Or that Christ couldn't have been fully human lest he experienced weakness and emotional pain. Now, a number of these teachings came from noble attempts to protect Jesus' deity. But in doing so, they diminished, they diminished Jesus' humanity. And sometimes you'll find the same in our circles. At times, Christians simply assume that Jesus never sinned because He was God. It's true that as the God-man, it was necessary for Jesus not to sin. But when the Bible presents Jesus never sinning, it does so in reference to His obedience as a man. For him to lean on his divine nature for assistance would mean he couldn't fully identify with us in our sufferings. Because we don't have a divine nature. When you look at his obedience, you're seeing a man as he was truly created to live. A man wholly in tune with the Father's will every moment. A man full of the Holy Spirit. A man constantly loving what is holy and hating what is evil. And all the while doing so in and through sufferings and testing for our sake. We can't lose sight of this. It's too important to the gospel. As one church father rightly put it, 
what has not been assumed cannot be restored. Or as a more recent author put it, for redemption to reach into, the ver- into every darkened corner of human existence, the Son had to take on that existence in its entirety. I think we need to treasure this more about Jesus, beloved. He became truly man, body and soul. He really assumed a human nature like ours, flesh and blood. That also means we must trust that Jesus is uniquely qualified to help when you're tempted and that he will help you when you're tempted. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. But on the way to glory, 10,000 temptations will meet us. The enemy will hurl whatever he can and use whatever he can to derail your perseverance in the faith. Some of you are barely hanging on. It feels like the world is shattering around you. You have thoughts like, Lord, if one more thing happens, I don't know if I can make it. Circumstances outside your control are forcing you into places that you wouldn't choose for anybody. You want to help others, but walking into that relationship is like walking into a tornado. It means risk, it means hurt, it means darkness, and perhaps nothing left at the end. Perhaps you can identify with the man in Andrew Peterson's song... The rain keeps falling. He says, there's a woman at home and she's praying for a light. My children are there and they love me in spite of the shadow I know they see in my eyes. And the rain keeps falling. Or perhaps you feel like nobody can really identify with the pain you feel with the suffering you've endured. Nobody really gets the abuse. Nobody really gets the anger. Nobody gets the dark closets when you were a boy. And you just want help. Beloved, Jesus is uniquely qualified to help. I'm not. The elders are not. I don't know the full extent of what you have suffered. None of us know the full complexities of what makes our hearts ache through the night. But we do know Jesus. And Jesus is able to help. He went through the sufferings as a man to identify with our pain. He bore up under the mounting weight of temptations. And he did it without sin, depending constantly on his father. He experienced satanic assault, abuse, abandonment, manipulation, liars, darkness. He saw the wreckage of our lives and he said, You're my father's sons and daughters and I will go through whatever it takes to get you to glory. And he did it 
mercifully and faithfully, he did it. He did it not only to offer the greatest sacrifice for your sins, he did it to become your ongoing help. He will help you through the temptations. He will get you to glory. He's already there. He went before us. But you know what? He doesn't just call to you from the finish line. Come on! Come on! No, He goes and gets you when you can't make it anymore and He carries you to the finish line Himself. That's the kind of Savior we have. That's the kind of help He gives. He's going to come through. He already spanned heaven and earth to cancel your biggest problem, which was sin. And now He's risen with perfect sympathy and absolute power to help you make it to glory. Let's do one more. If Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, then we shouldn't be ashamed to call each other brothers and sisters. Perhaps you've had a family member fall into various kinds of sin and, and it leaves you feeling ashamed. Perhaps you've been in situations where others associate you with your family member's shameful acts and you want to crawl into a hole and pretend like, like you don't know them. At times I've seen Christians act in, other, in certain ways or, or say certain things that, that may even be very wrong and that may even need correction, but in the presence of others, I've distanced myself from them. I've felt ashamed in those moments to call them brothers and sisters. I once had a brother tell me as we were trying to work towards reconciliation in a relationship. I mean, I love them and all, but it's not like I'm going to have them over for dinner. Really? How'd that go for Peter in Galatians 2? Not well. Ask Paul. In some ways, fellow believers can do things that make us feel ashamed to be around them, to associate with them. Beloved, in those moments, I'd encourage you to consider how great your own offenses have been to God. How far we've been from measuring up to His standards. How much shame we ourselves have merited before Him. And yet Christ is not ashamed to call you, brother. To call you a sister. To be clear, I'm not not minimizing the need for correction when people commit shameful acts. But it certainly informs the spirit in which we go about those corrections, doesn't it? 
And it's, it's a spirit that knows the full extent of Jesus' saving work, not just for you, but for the others in this room. Can you say of every person in this room, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. I'm not ashamed to call you sister. If not, we need to get there. You need to take steps to get there. First with the Lord and then with them. We have to treat one another in the church as Christ Himself identifies with us. And when we see each other through that lens, all of the earthly classifications that we do will dissipate. And all of the earthly divisions will heal. That's what this table should remind us about. The King of heaven and earth isn't ashamed to spread a feast for the family and then invite them to eat and to drink with Him. He identified with us. He endured sufferings for us. He defeated Satan's strongholds for us. He snapped death's chains. He satisfied God's wrath and He lives forevermore to help and all to bring you and I to glory. So let's eat and drink now to remember His great grace and proclaim His death until He comes again. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.